The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit RestorationSouthside.org. This began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his his suffering by many proofs and appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witness in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And when they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, Why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men, from every nation under heaven. And uh, And at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear, each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and the residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, They are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. If you're in kindergarten through fifth grade and you would like to go to children's church, please join our volunteers in the back by the children's church sign. If it's your child's first time in children's church, please go with them so we can get them checked in. Not only does Jacob have a good reading voice, it is also his birthday, so make sure you tell him happy birthday. (laughs) Uh, Well, my name is Mark. I'm on staff here at Restoration, and we are so glad to have all of you with us. Uh, We are starting a new sermon series this morning in the New Testament book of Acts. Acts was written by Luke. Luke also wrote the gospel according to Luke. Uh, And if his gospel was all about who Jesus is and what he did and what he taught, Kind of in a nutshell, the good news that King Jesus has ushered in his kingdom. And even though every man and woman has gone against God, Jesus lived the life we should have lived. He died the death we should have died. And by faith in him, you can be a part of his kingdom. Uh, This is kind of the sequel to that gospel, right? This is the good news. The sequel is all about the spread of that gospel and the spread of the kingdom. And as the good news goes out through men and women bearing witness to what they saw and experienced. It's men and women bearing witness to that gospel. And so we've named this sermon series, Can I Get a Witness? Partly to draw you in with our dad humor, our disarming humor. Uh, And more importantly, when Jesus sends the disciples out, their mission is to bear witness. Not only to the eyewitness events of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension, uh, but also to bear witness to the power of the Holy Spirit that it is work in every Christian. Jesus says in Matthew 28, says, I want you to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them. And Christianity claims that faith comes from hearing the good news. Initially from those eyewitness accounts saying, we saw Jesus do this. Jesus taught us this. We saw him rise from the dead. We saw him ascend into heaven. And now today it's through God's word, the inspired accounts of those eyewitness accounts. And just want to be clear from the beginning, um, the book of Acts has some really weird stuff in it. And if you're someone like me who likes kind of nice and tidy categories, uh, it can be tempting to just want to skip over the weirdness. Like once you have your theological categories, you want to put like Pentecost in one and spiritual gifts and some of these crazier miracles um, and just kind of keep going. But we would be doing ourselves a huge disservice if we did that, if we just skipped over it. It's okay to sit in the weirdness. It's okay to sit in the mystery of Christianity. Um, and maybe not fully understand everything we want to. This is a crucial moment in the history of the church, and it sets the stage for everything that's going to come after it. And if we stop and think about it, it kind of needs to be strange, doesn't it? Like it, it, So much of the messaging you hear today is, you know, all your problems, your biggest problems are all outside of you. They're all out there, um, you know, whether it's the education system or the former president or the current president or the future president or the housing market, or the job market, which all of those are anxiety-inducing if you spend more than 10 seconds thinking about them. Um, You know, the the message you keep on getting is your biggest problems are out there and the solution is inside you. You know, just find your truth, be true to yourself. So long as you don't hurt anybody, you do you. Uh, And maybe you hear that message and you, 
you like that message. Maybe that's comforting and that sounds good to you. Uh, but what I want to pitch at you is that Christianity claims that the exact opposite is true. Christianity says that our biggest problem is us and outside help has to come in to save us. Um, in the words of the modern theologian, Taylor Swift, uh, it's me, hi, I'm the problem, it's me. Uh, and, and the book of Acts is gonna be strange, right? Because it's the historical account of God and the Holy Spirit dwelling with his people and not only changing them, but empowering them to bear witness to the beauty and the truth of the gospel. Our biggest problem isn't outside of us, it's what's inside of us. And it's only through God coming from the outside in, doing a work in our hearts, that we can be redeemed and restored and forgiven. And you think about it, if your biggest problem in life is out there, it's other people, it's your boss or your parents, or your teachers, or your coworkers, you don't really have any control over that, do you? You can't really do a whole lot to change that. But if your biggest problem is you, and what goes on inside of you, and the promise of the gospel is that God is able and willing to change you, that's something you can have hope in, isn't it? Right? If you've tried everything else and looked everywhere else and other people to help you and fix you for hope and change, and you haven't found it yet, you know, what if the gospel's true? And if it is true, doesn't it make sense that it would be unlike anything else this world has ever seen? And so as we go through Acts, just keep in mind that it, it would be weird if it weren't weird. So embrace the weirdness. Um, with that weird intro, let me pray and we'll jump in. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Uh, we thank you for this historical account of something that happened 2,000 years ago and is so prevalent and so uh, meaningful for us today. So by the work of your Holy Spirit, would you help us to see you clearly and see ourselves clearly? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, if you were to look back throughout the Old Testament, God shows up many, many times. Uh, and usually whenever he shows up, it's in some form of fire. Uh, so you think about whenever God leads the Israelites out of Egypt, out of slavery, he leads them at night as a pillar of fire and smoke by the day. Uh, when God makes a covenant with Abraham, he comes as like a flaming torch, a smoking incense thing. Uh, probably the most famous time God appears is with Moses. Moses is wandering around in the wilderness and he sees what? Oh man, y'all are still asleep. A burning bush, everybody said together. Um, it's it's the, the entire bush is on fire, but somehow it's not being consumed. And more on that in a second. Uh, the point being that for centuries, God's presence is made known by fire. And whenever God's presence shows up in the Old Testament, best case scenario, people fell on their faces as though dead. Worst case scenario, some of them actually died because they came too close to the presence of God. Look back at verses uh, one through three. It says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house when they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. You see what's going on here at Pentecost then. Right, God's presence isn't just at certain points in redemptive history. God's presence is now with every single Christian. Right, God's presence, uh, it's, he's made it known that everybody who follows Jesus, they're now a burning bush, in a sense, where God's presence is with them, but you're not obliterated because of your sin. It's beautiful. Pentecost, when after Jesus ascends and the Holy Spirit descends, um, the presence of God that used to be a near-death experience or had to be contained behind this huge, thick curtain in the tabernacle so nobody would get too close, 
It's now coming to everyone who follows and trusts Jesus. Everyone, right? Notice the all-inclusive language here. Verse one, they were all together in one place. Verse three, tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Verse four, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, We're in the middle of nominating men and women to be leaders in our church now, to be uh, officers on the care team and serve team. And these are spiritually mature men and women who love Jesus, and they've been equipped and called to lead. Uh, And we have some amazing people to do that. And I hope everybody knows that those aren't like super Christians. I mean, they've been called to do it, but it's not like the super Christians get the Holy Spirit and everybody else kind of has to fend for themselves. Um, Through faith in Jesus, you receive the Holy Spirit, you know, full stop. In our passage, there are a lot of people in the house, and the apostles were the most set-apart people in history, right? Jesus handpicked each one of these people. He lived with them for three years. He taught them. And so if ever there there were like 12 super Christians, it was these guys. And yet, um, the Holy Spirit comes to everyone, not because of the amount of faith they had, not because of their history, like they didn't do certain things, The Holy Spirit comes to those based solely on the object of their faith, which is Jesus. You put your confidence and your trust in Jesus, you get the Holy Spirit. Uh, Look back at that first part of verse 4. It says, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Think back to when Jesus was baptized, right? He's baptized, the Holy Spirit descends like a dove, and then what does the Father say? He says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Do you know that if you consider yourself a Christian this morning, that God says that to you? He says, you you are my daughter and I am well pleased with you. You're my son and I am well pleased. In the book of Romans, Paul calls us fellow heirs with Christ, right? By faith of Jesus, we are adopted into the family of God. And part of what the Holy Spirit does is comfort you and press this reality of the gospel into your heart so that you don't just know it, but you feel it and you live it. Paul says in Romans 8 that it's by the Spirit that we are able to cry out to God, Abba, Father. We see him as a father figure. In other words, the Holy Spirit enables you to experience what is already true about you if you're in Christ. We're going to talk a lot about the Holy Spirit in the sermon series. We can't cover all of it today. But if, that's, if that part is what goes on internally when you receive the Holy Spirit, um, you know, comfort, assurance of forgiveness and salvation, assurance of God's love, um, the affection that God has for you forever. If that's what the Spirit does internally, what does it look like on the outside? Well, from our passage, it look, kind of looks like you're drunk. Right? Uh, it says, verse 13, when everybody breaks out speaking and understanding each other in different languages, it says that some people were mocking them, saying they're filled with new wine. And Paul's going to talk about this later in Ephesians 5. He'll say, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. So there's some connection between being filled with the Spirit and seeming like you're drunk. Uh, What does that mean? What's the connection? One of the best explanations I've heard of this is from a guy named Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was a pastor in the 1900s. I think he died in the 80s. But brilliant theologian, pastor, writer. He's also a medical doctor. He's a brilliant guy. Um, And he says, "When when you're drunk, you think you can do anything. Right? He says alcohol is a depressant and kind of just suppresses your inhibitions. It takes away your fear. Right? You think you can dance when you have a couple of drinks. You think you can go talk to that person and not have a panic attack. Uh, when you're drunk, you have less fear because you have kind of a diminished view of reality. When you're filled with the Holy Spirit, on the other hand, you still have less fear, but it's because you have a heightened view of reality. 
right? In other words, that the, the Spirit helps you see things as they truly are. The Spirit assures you that you have a hope in Christ and the promise of life to come in a world without sin in the presence of God forever. Does that make sense? Like you don't have fear when you're drunk because you have a less clear view of reality and you don't have fear when you're filled with the Holy Spirit because you have a greater, clear view of reality. You know that Jesus has ascended into heaven. I love that we read the Apostles' Creed this morning. We don't typically do that, but I love it. Jesus ascended into heaven. He's sitting next to the Father uh, and he is interceding on your behalf. You know you're forgiven. You know you're accepted by the one who has ultimate authority and power in this universe. You have no fear because you know that even the terrible things of this world will one day be put to right. In Christ, you're filled with the Spirit. You can have what Tim Keller calls this joyful fearlessness. I love that, a joyful fearlessness. It's not a dumb, unthinking lack of fear because your brain's kind of fuzzy and depressed. Uh, it's this joyful lack of fear because you know that you're a child of God. And he's promised to make all things right and all things new. So going back to our passage, the men and women who receive the Holy Spirit, they start fearlessly sharing the gospel and telling people about the kingdom of God, even though that's what Jesus was crucified for just a few weeks before. Like This is not a safe place to share the, the gospel. And going forward, these men and women are going to face death. And if they're not killed, they're definitely going to face a loss of kind of social stability and a social status and money. Um, and yet, it's dangerous for them to do this. And yet, instead of getting snuffed out, the church explodes in, throughout the Roman Empire. It, it just can't be stopped, even though Rome's going to fall about 300 years later. Being a witness that endures hardship and loss of social standing, loss of work, particularly in the Roman Empire, loss of life, y'all, that's a powerful witness, isn't it? When you don't care what happens in this life, so long as you are faithfully following Jesus, because you know that whatever good things you could experience, whatever good things you could kind of accumulate in this life, it pales in comparison to the inheritance you have in Christ. And likewise, whatever hard and painful things you endure in this life, God promises full and total healing from them. Right? God never tells you just to kind of toughen up and not be, don't feel so deeply the wounds that you feel. He never says that. But he does promise that one day, one day all of your tears will be wiped away. Every sickness will be healed. Every injustice, injustice won't even exist in this kingdom. Death itself will be no more. Amen? Okay, let's talk about the tongues. Verse 4, what in the world is going on here? When it says, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And then in verses 9 through 20, it lists about people from almost 20 different places and different languages and cultures. Um, and verse 11 records the crowd saying, we hear them telling in our own tongues, our languages, the mighty works of God. Now, when you hear that phrase, speaking in tongues, I'm assuming most of us, a mental image pops in your head immediately. Um, for better or for worse, right? Maybe it's a YouTube of a, a bunch of people in a church, all kinds of noises going kind of crazy. Or maybe you spend some time in a more Pentecostal or charismatic church. Wherever your mind goes and whatever your experience has been with that, um, this is actually very different here in Acts 2. And even, it's even different than other times in Scripture that it talks about speaking in tongues. So in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, Paul is going to talk about the gift of tongues. Um, and even then, this is just a few decades after Pentecost when he's writing 1 Corinthians, Paul says that you, there needs to be an interpreter so that people can understand what's going on when people start speaking in tongues. And in 1 Corinthians 14, he says, if someone has a gift of tongues and they start speaking and there's no one there to interpret it, 
They need to be silent because it's going to cause way too much confusion if people don't understand what's going on. Paul is just assuming that if someone's speaking tongues, there has to be another person interpreting. Do we see then when the Holy Spirit comes initially and causes these people to speak in different languages, how this is so different in this time? There isn't any confusion at all, is there? Right? Every person who is there is hearing the gospel, hearing Christians spread the gospel in their own language. You know, please hear this. This is so important. If you forget everything else, just remember this. I'd prefer you didn't forget everything else either, but just <laughs> hear this. The risen Lord Jesus ascends into heaven. The Holy Spirit descends and dwells every single follower of Christ, comforts them with the assurance of God's love and acceptance and forgiveness towards them, empowers them to share the truth of the gospel. And at this crucial moment in history, it's broadcasted in every language. Right? When the gospel was first preached to the world, it was heard in every single language. You see the implications of that. I want to quote Tim Keller again here because he puts it so well. He says, By a deliberate miracle, God made sure that there was no language and therefore no culture that has precedence over any other in the Christian faith. There's no culture that has pride of place. In other words, because God deliberately had the first time the gospel was shared, preached in every single language around there, there is no one language or no one culture that is the right culture. So important. It's one of the reasons why Sammy and our music team, they sing a song in Spanish every once in a while. Most of you are not fluent in Spanish. Uh, a handful of you grew up in Spanish-speaking homes, but as we, as we start to press deeper and deeper into Chattanooga, we want our church to be a reflection of the community around us and the people who are here. We want to be crystal clear letting people know that the gospel transcends all cultural boundaries. It transcends the majority culture, right? We, we definitely have a style of worship here at Restoration. Like, I love that I can play my banjo and it's not super out of place, I don't think. Uh, but God isn't somehow, worship of God isn't somehow less or it's not somehow deficient if it includes different instruments that you don't like or it's a different number of songs or it's longer, shorter, more traditional, more informal. Uh, when I was in seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina, my wife and I interned at a church, and the head pastor was African-American, the associate pastor is white, and they, their buddies in seminary, they wanted to plant a church that was very multicultural, multi-ethnic, and they wanted everybody to be comfortable coming to worship at this church. And I'll never forget, uh, the first time we were there, the music, it's not my favorite, uh, the first song was A Mighty Fortress Is Our God, I was like, oh, I love this hymn, it's written by Martin Luther 500 years ago. You know, if you've ever heard it over like a huge pipe organ with just like a hundred person choir, it's beautiful. That's, that's what I had in my mind. But instead it was almost like a Jimi Hendrix kind of cover band of A Mighty Fortress Is Our God. And I didn't like it. Um, and I remember telling the pastors afterwards, they're like, hey, what'd you think about it? I was like, well, sermon was great. I love all this other stuff. I didn't really like the music. And they both got these huge smiles on their faces. They're like, good, you're not supposed to like it. <laughs> Because they were so careful not to swing one way towards one culture or swing another way towards another culture, they essentially didn't want anybody being too comfortable because they had to create a new culture of music where it wasn't giving preference to, to either one. Does that make sense? I mean, it was, it was so uncomfortable initially. I eventually did love those songs there. You know, I've never clapped along to Holy, 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 but it was beautiful. Um, the beauty of the gospel is that it can come into any culture, and even though God changes hearts and behaviors, God never demands that you just jettison your culture or jettison the things that you grew up with. So if you're here this morning and you ever get a, a hint of us doing that, kind of putting one culture over another or kind of demeaning, talking away that's demeaning to another culture, please tell us. Like, 
we, we would never intentionally do that. So if we do that, we want to be made aware of it. Um, this church will be so much more beautiful and attractive if instead of asking people to change and kind of be molded into the dominant culture, we can actually have examples of what Christianity looks like when it's put into other cultures. It's not going to be easy. It's going to require a lot of grace from everybody. Um, but we want to be a faithful witness to the city and to the rest of the world. All that to say, whatever kind of perfect vision of a church you have in your mind, um, you know, you think it needs to be this kind of music, people need to wear these kind of clothes, it needs to be this long, the preacher needs to preach for this certain amount and talk about Taylor Swift less, whatever else (laughs) it is, whatever whatever your preference is, you shouldn't be ashamed of your preferences, uh, but you cannot think that it is the right way to worship God. You can't put your preferences above anybody else's. Um, or that your preferred way is the only way. At Pentecost, God made sure that the heart of the gospel is that the invitation goes to everyone, and no one is ex- excluded because of where they came from. What is Pentecost, anyway? Verse 1, it says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Uh, well, Pentecost is this yearly celebration that took place 50 days after Passover. And if you think back to the first Passover, that happened in Exodus when God led his people out of slavery in Egypt. And at dinner, right before they left, they killed a lamb and they put the blood of the lamb over their doorways so that God would pass over them in judgment as he came. So God looked at the blood and said, you're good, not because of what you've done, but because of the blood of this lamb. And so Pentecost was 50 days after that and it was when God gave his people the law. On Mount Sinai, there in the wilderness, God gave his people the 10 commandments and he made a covenant with them. And he said, keep my commandments and I'll be your God and you'll be my people. Uh, and it, was, it wasn't all the people together up, up on the mountain, it was just Moses, because all the people were terrified. And multiple times, um, God, they needed a mediator to go before them, and it was always Moses. Um, and so multiple times, Israel's wandering in the wilderness, they do something really dumb, they go against God. Uh, Moses has to come and intercede and say, God, please don't wipe them out. So it is not because of what they did. They sinned, but yet Moses is the one who intercedes and takes care of it. So do we see how amazing this Pentecost is hundreds of years later? God's presence doesn't just come to the mountaintop to one person. It comes down into the heart of every single believer. And this time, instead of bringing the law, it brings the gospel. That the law has been perfectly fulfilled by Jesus on our behalf. That Jesus took the curse of breaking the law so that by faith you and I could have the blessings of keeping it. If If your faith is in Jesus, God looks at you as if you have perfectly kept his law always. Jesus was cut off from the Father so that you and I could be brought into the family and be sons or daughters of him. And as sons and daughters of God, not only have you received the Holy Spirit, but the work of Jesus is finished. And as he sits at the right hand of the Father, he promises to one day come again to make all things new and to wipe away every tear. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you so much for the good news. It is good news. It is not something that we have earned or anything that we deserve. Uh, But you look at us and you come to us and you take care of everything. And so we pray that we would not be complacent in that, but we would know what power we have in us with the Holy Spirit. Power to change, power to break habits, power to love others uh, selflessly and at great cost. Would you help us to live our lives not worried about what we'll lose or gain in this life, but knowing what we have to come in the next. 
We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Power to love others selflessly at a great cost. Would you help us to live our lives not worried about what we'll lose or gain in this life, but knowing what we have to come in the next. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.